It's a Sin is Russell T Davies' 2021 series following five 18-year-olds who moved to London in 1981, covering their lives throughout the 80s, with a focus on the AIDS epidemic. Shown as initially a whispered mess of misinformation and confusion, and eventually a horrifying crisis of devastating scale. Russell T Davies, or RTD, also show ran the dystopian future sci-fi show Years and Years, the other acclaimed gay-themed dramas Queer as Folk and Cucumber, as well as Being the Man Who Bought Doctor Who Back in 2005. Today, we'll be discussing the first episode of It's a Sin. For most of the discussion, we'll just be discussing purely that first episode. In fact, the main discussion was recorded before we'd seen further into the series. However, at the end of that main discussion, after a clearly marked transition, there will be a smaller segment, The Sin Spoiler Zone, where we discuss the first episode in context of the entire series, with two of us having since seen the whole show and recording that more spoilery segment. So, if you've only seen the first episode at this time, do feel free to click away at that point. And we did this because while the show is being broadcast weekly in the UK, it was also released all at once online, and that's the way HBO Max will release it too. It's such a rich and interestingly written show that each episode is really worth discussing on their own terms, but for those that have seen the whole thing, we have those sin spoiler zones at the end to discuss episodes in context of the whole show and everything that happens within it. So let's start talking about episode one, our 1981 episode that sets up our five main characters. Again, this main discussion was recorded before we'd seen further into the series and so we only talk about the events of episode one. Doing the discussing will be myself, Neo from Australia, as well as Ingiga from England and Tomtit from Australia also. What did you guys think of the first episode? I thought it was immensely promising. I think it's RTD writing in a mode that really suits his skill set. And I um, had a few moments that maybe I could have had less of, but on the whole, it was just really interesting, really exciting. Tom, what did you think of the first episode? Um, I think there's a sense in which it kind of feels like Russell T Davies' career has been building up to this in a sort of way. Like, he's talking in, talked in the past about how this is very consciously, he would consider himself a failure if he didn't do this. Um, and I think it really shines through in this first episode because it really sort of combines all his unique skills as a writer. Like, the, the whole sense of um, things slowly unraveling and falling apart, which he's honed in some of his sci-fi thrillers, you know, like The Children of Earth and Years and Years type mode, that really is applied to like a real historical setting here. And also the, just the whole device of a passage of a vast expanse of time, which um, years and years obviously was massively instrumental in how he honed that technique. And that is again, is like fully on display here. And um, I think it's amazing just how much is covered in this episode um, with such like economy, you know, he's, he's figured out just how to make it feel so effortless to ingratiate with these characters and immerse yourselves in their world. So, um, yeah, I loved it. It's like RTD's grand tragedy, dram dramatic skills are um, sort of hitting a height, I think, already, you know. You can see the dominoes start to fall even in episode one, which is part of why it's so powerful, I think. I liked how joyful the introduction of the characters or their development as they start finding themselves more was. And it didn't feel necessarily undercut by the looming threat of HIV, which very much cast a atmosphere over the episode. It just felt kind of like an addition as part of the show. But I didn't feel like I was meant to be, oh no, what horrible things are going to happen to Colin? What horrible things are going to happen to Richie? I felt like there was a real joy 
to watching their lives unfold. And however things shake out over the next four episodes, I think it'll be done tastefully. Um, it struck me on that point of things unraveling and what's going to happen and stuff. And another link with RTD's past career, not to spoil that show at all, but another way in which RTD honed this kind of technique was in that one episode of Cucumber, which kind of tells the story of a guy's life. Yes. And what what really stuck out for me is how rather than focusing on plottiness like you could say maybe some parts of years and years did a bit in this case it's really um anecdotally moving through a montage of scenes from a life and i think that's what rtd excels so well at and makes it feel so smooth i feel that if the whole show is like this it could basically be just a five hour long take on what that episode did so well and that's really promising if he's gonna draw from anything in his career that episode is probably the best thing to draw from yeah absolutely um and one moment in this episode that kind of struck out was um when richie's on the boat and his dad hands in the condoms and he looks at them and smirks a bit and then just throws them away and then we cut away like even though that's that's not some huge moment it's not given some doom laden tone but obviously because we have the maybe the foreknowledge of what's coming or you know there maybe there's some expectations it's it rings out as such a moment of tragic flaw like it's funny but it's also tragic and it's it's just that perfect blend which i think rtd has uh, rather mastered and it's also that like complicated mix of emotions where you sort of want him to rebel against um epso the father <laughs> when we say epso we're referring to richie's father who is in fact named clive yeah it's just that we recognize the actor as having played a character called epso on doctor who because he's just you can tell he's a prick from the offset basically um but yeah of course you also know what it means in terms of the overarching narrative but yeah it's that whole mix of like wanting to lash out and rebel and um the consequences of that are like such a huge part of the show which of the three main boys spoke to or appealed to you guys most the loud roscoe the quiet colin or the drama students Richie. I mean, I found Colin probably the the most adorable, certainly yeah. by the end, you know, because he's so he's so uh, kind of repressed and innocent. And then whenever he kind of breaks out into a smile, just at seeing one of the other one of the other gay people do something, you know, it's like he's sort of coming out of his shell. That's really nice. But I will say, I also found the introductory um, sequence of Roscoe when he suddenly <laughs> appears in front of his family in a full drag. I didn't see that coming at all. I thought he was just going to like out of the house. So when that happened, I was like, oh my god, that's the sort of moment that instantly. In enshrines a character as iconic like wow you know I, I i i think it's just sort of indelible and i i love the, the just the, the transgressiveness and the humor of that yeah it it feels like the three leads are sort of representing like a gradient of privilege almost with colin sort of at the high end and roscoe um at the lowest end of privilege um and it's how it affects those three characters in different ways um, I think I agree that like Roscoe is so much fun and he seemed to have the least three time screen time of the three in the episode. Um, so episode one at least kind of left me wanting more of him. So I, I'd say he was a standout from the start to me. But yeah, all three are, I think, exceptionally well realized. I was really touched by how struck Colin was just by this kind of realization of a life he didn't seem to know that could be lived the way Neil Patrick Harris's character just demonstrated that there is a happy you know life and there is a workable way of life I love how he explained he had that line about history how they say in history you know all the gay men just live secretly away but look at me and Juan I I thought that was really touching and just on Colin's face that adoration and you know wonder at th this is an actual 
there is a place for me in life, you know, in this way. Someone else is doing it. I can model myself on him. And then in his ending speech, how he said he wants to learn everything about dying and tailoring. Like, when I say dying, that was such a poor choice of words. Like the the Blackberry die, the tweed die, like Mr. Coltrane knew. I, I found that super, super touching. Were you guys struck by that kind of performance and that relationship between the two. Um, I will say uh, the bit when he's talking to Mr. Coltrane in the, the cafe or wherever it is, and uh, Mr. Coltrane asks him, you know, would you like there to be a boyfriend? And, you know, Colin just quietly admits yes. And mm. that, there was, it's almost, almost like sort of a coming out scene, but obviously not one, but like, the, you know, he actually able to admit that he has not just that he's gay, but that he has desires as well, that he has, you know, the, the desire to be loved. I thought that was really touching. I thought it was interesting how, um, the environment that he was coming from, they never showed him on screen facing any homophobia, but what he does face is like his landlady is sort of patronizing to him about his Welshness. And um, he obviously comes from just like a very upright, comfortable background. And um, you can see like in the, in the boarding house he's staying out, there's like sport playing in the background, just a basic, you know, basic masculinity cult type environment. Um, so it's kind of like, you don't have to come from a background of, the most enormous drama to have that desire to escape. It, it can occur even in um, just like someone like Colin and it's equally, um, you know, affordable for him to to leave that and join this raucous, adventurous lifestyle. Um, I like that aspect of it. It was like interesting. I found it fascinating that um, when he joined the others at the Pink Palace, like no one was really judging him for being the only one walking around there in a suit, just looking incredibly uptight. Although they did, they, um, they um, Jill calls him Gladys Pugh, and they sort of yeah. maybe make rip him a little bit for that. But they're not like they're not sort of, dude, what are you doing? Why why do you look like this? Why do you act like this? It was quite unjudgy on the whole. Yeah, I was a bit. Um, this is like more of a strength of the writing in my view, but I was sort of put off by the fact that they keep calling him Gladys Pugh. It's like he's moved from one sort of condescending environment to another really but that that's what i like about the characters is that like they're not all saints you know they can as as young people can be they can be sort of rude and not always you know the the most deft in in how they talk to others but um it was a nice detail i think and obviously naturally drawing from russell t davis's own experience as a welshman um yeah the whole thing yeah the the, the feeling of authenticity to it speaking of authenticity what (laughs) what did we think of that scene with Ash and Richie and Hygiene. Um, that was like, <laughs> I, I would say, um, bravo to RTG for not like flinching away from like the, the, the grossness and the funniness and the sort of stupidity of that. Cause I think it, it would be a disservice, I think, to make it some fantasized, ridiculous, idealized first gay experience. Cause that's just, you know, that's, that's not what real life is like. So yeah, I thought that was um, amusing. Honestly, the, the more cringy bit for me was like when Richie started sort of spaghettiing with like uh, talking about Ash's yeah. race and stuff later on. That was the point where I was like, ah, like I was like biting my phone and like ah no stop interesting i noticed that there was kind of um there was kind of a follow-up to that later on as well with uh when jill visited um richie's parents and they were kind of like racist to her as well it's like wow okay (laughs) there's a lot of this going on it's yeah it was such this that same family's type of racism and that it was just that such a patronizing like how he was babbling trying to get the right religion to identify ash with and then how epso was like oh we 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 um respect all flags of the world or something in this house something like that like that preening yeah. trying to you know puff their chests up about how not racist they are is just ugh. and it's it's the thing that like um Epso his sort of 
neurosis that is coming to the fore in this episode is that he needs to like keep tabs on on these people these like minorities is because there's that refrain about how he sees the indian family and he always says there they are it's like <laughs> he he nominally accepts them but he always needs to know sort of what they're doing um in that sort of paranoid vein and um also i, I love the way that uh, richie's awkward dialogue um about the race thing was written because like i think so often when these kind of scenes play out in shows those lines are always laced with you know awkward pauses and and stumbles and the way richie handled it is more true to my experience (laughs) where it's just like if i keep talking then then it'll (laughs) fix itself but that doesn't happen um apparently but yeah i thought that was very naturalistic in a good way so, so I just just another thing on the, the just the racism bits. Like I find this bit so viscerally cringe to sit through. I think I think not just because of like the inherent awkwardness of like a character spaghettiing all over themselves, but I think also just because of like the the racial awkwardness as well. It's just like yeah, I, I've been there slightly, and it's like not not on the racist side, but like I I just yeah, it's I think there's a degree to which you can kind of you can sort of have fun putting all of that stuff in the show and. Yeah, it it's still it's just kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't know where this is going. Carry on. I rewatched it a few times just because the cringe was so powerful. <laughs> yeah, I just needed to like get it out of my system. It, it was <laughs> yeah, very well done. Do you mean in the sense, gig, that the um the actual writing of it felt like uncomfortable, or just that the like? Are you speaking intentionally or unintentionally? Not like. Not like I'm not like like, like cancelling RTG for how it was written or anything, but I, yeah, I yeah. feel like I felt that it's kind of the the cringe is harsher. I think if you're not white and you've kind of maybe you've been through like sort of things a bit like that, like it, and I think it's it's maybe and whereas for for a white viewer it might be something that you're more maybe like looking at from a bit of a remove or something. I don't know. It's just it's just interesting to know. I don't know. No, I, I know what you mean. I've, in interviews around the show, Russell T Davies has been doing this interesting thing where I feel like he's oscillating between between being like super woke and then kind of uh, <laughs> like um, he's going the other way. Sounds ridiculous. But like he has a thing where he said he was bracing for critical onslaught about the show because uh, he says, I know the response will be. Uh, what about the woman who died? What about the lesbians who died? What about the children who died? What about the Africans? You know, in the sense that why didn't you cover them? And then he links that into the idea of authenticity because his recent comments about um, how he cast gay actors to play gay characters in this show and that's how he thinks lends more authenticity or more authenticity to programs. And he connects that stream of thought to saying, but if I'd written that, like if I'd written about the lesbians more and it's a sin, they'd say... Only a lesbian could write that. Only an African could write that. And then Russell T. Davis starts laughing in that interview. So I think that there is a sense of like, obviously the show is doing a lot of um, authentic and very progressive stuff, but the nature and the flavor of Russell's nuance is that, yeah, some of it does come across that he is who he is. You know, he's a excellent white Welsh writer writing what he writes. So I think I see what you mean uh, when you were describing that scene. Any of that makes sense? Yeah. 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 No. No. That was yeah. Completely on point. Yeah. Okay. I've cancelled RTD and shut down. <laughs> <laughs> so what? Um. Just completely change the subject. What do you guys think of the music from Murray Gold? It was fantastic, and it it felt so like simpatico with what the script was doing. You know how like the director of the pilot, the Doctor Who episode, um, it wasn't him who came up with the film strip thing. It was Stephen Moffat because he's a very you know visual writer. Yeah, Russell did um script the well. Ru- Russell scripted the music cues. Okay, I thought so. Yeah, but my point is that like it, it tells the story so well, which, which is this is something 
Russell has praised Murray Gold in the, for the past, which is that Murray Gold's music, it's not, it's not judgmental about what the characters are doing. That's how Russell phrased yeah. it, is that normally in a show, it's like if a, if a character does something bad, the music will be like, you know, ooh, ominous. Um, but Murray Gold's music, it tells the story and it also plays like the subtext, um, which is kind of the opposite of what people say he does, which is that like he tells you how to feel. Yeah. But Murray was a massive part of this program, still is a massive part of this program, because um, it's something about his music. It's, a lot of musicians write music and it's sort of quite judgmental. It's like if people have been naughty, then the music's telling them off, or or if it's, it, it, it sort of feeds you the emotion. And actually, Murray just tells the story and it's like it's lifting the scene, it's celebrating it, and it's fantastic. He does tell you how to feel, but in the sense of like how a scriptwriter tells you how to feel. It's bigger than yeah. just what one character is thinking and feeling. It's a whole overarching world of, you know, themes and ideas. This isn't really a spoiler, but in Queer as Folk, there's this motif of how the young character in that, he, he compares himself to Mozart. He's like the Mozart of going out clubbing, essentially. And this is like, Richie is putting Nathan from Queer as Folk, he's putting him to shame. Like, he's not just Mozart, he's the entire <laughs> canon of, yeah. of, of classical music. Um, but yeah, what an incredible scene. And I also had a really passionate approval of like the the source music they use the the real like tracks from the ear i thought that was really intelligent um the music choices um but yeah what do you guys think just the music and the editing of that richie montage scene was just so so joyful even more than cathartic it was just this incredible thing to watch it it got you in his headspace so effectively it's like those moments where a show all the elements are working so well together it's just like you beam and you completely connect with the vibe that's happening on screen inside a character's head. It was yeah. entrancing. It was re really, really magical. I thought that was just absolutely fantastic. Top work from the editor, from Russell Avery scripted that, and top work from Murray Old. And of course, Richie's actor and all the other actors. Just a fantastic sequence. On the music point on the whole, I felt that um, compared to Years and Years, which was like the last RTD miniseries with music from Gold, I felt that um, the music, it never felt insistent upon itself as it, I think it yeah. maybe did here and there in mm. Y and Y. Obviously in Y and Y was this kind of apocalyptic whatever, so there was some call for it to maybe be a bit, uh, I don't know, sort of over the top. But here I felt it, I, it never like it never sort of called attention to itself. I was never kind of thinking about the music particularly because it was so well woven in to the show, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, there's no instantly iconic um, refrains or like motifs in this in the way that sort of that years and years music was instantly iconic. Um, Murray Gold's music in this is, it's much, I found it more subdued. Um, yeah. I yeah. mean, he's very in keeping with the whole 80s synth, synth aesthetic, but like, it's it really puts a lie to people who say that yeah Murray Gold's music is always like loud and in your face a lot of it here is like that ambient style that you see in a lot of like other prestige tv shows but um in the scene where Colin um goes to see what's Neil Patrick Harris's character called Mr Coltrane yeah when, when Colin goes to see Mr Coltrane in hospital it starts out as this like barely barely insistent like string just hum and then it swells up into a more uh, grandiose thing In terms of the actual 80s tracks used, I thought uh, not only were they great picks, but I loved the amount of songs they used. It was a real onslaught yes. of tracks they were drawing from. And what it reminded me of is I know recently 
uh, with the Wonder Woman 1984 film, which is like the title is about the 80s and a lot of the marketing and the film itself is about the 80s. And yet it's this absolute absence of 80s aesthetic in a lot of ways. Like there's so little 1980s music in it. And I know that disappointed a lot of people because music is such a huge part of like the Western conception of the 80s. To pull that out, it's such an unatmospheric way to do the era. So having recently watched that, and then watching this, I was, yeah, really struck by how great just using so much music was. It's not just the great music choices, it was the amount of music used. I really liked that. And I'll, I'll tell you what I love, is that it's so many, like, so many works of fiction that throw back to the 80s. So many composers instantly go for, like, bass-heavy, reverb-drenched synthesizers. Um, and this is, like, really intelligently sticking to, I think, what it was more like in the very early 80s, which is that, like, the synth pop was there. I mean, there's Tainted Love, which is, like, such a serendipitous music choice for the, for the content of this show and just for the, being an iconic song. And also, I was really surprised that that had even come out in 1981. Like, I would have guessed it was later 80s, but I looked it up and it, it's not an anachronism. But, like, yeah, it's not just the synth pop. It's, like, still, still in the sort of fallout of punk. So there's, like, a lot of post-punk playing and also just the aesthetic of the clubs that they go to. There's, like, Dead Kennedys posters on the wall and everything. And so there's that old, um, like, sort of Susie Sue-looking punk who warns Richie about the disease from America, which he poo-poos instantly. So, yeah, there's, like, the post-punk and there's also a really prominent use of like reggae and ska in this, which is just fantastic that it shows that um, like the music, the underground music scene of the early eighties was like such a diverse thing. It's not just the, you know, romantic synth pop. It's like all these different music choices coming from different places, which is really in keeping with the attitude of the series itself, which I think is very good at not just confining it to like someone like Richie. It's, it's, you know, including other perspectives, which I just thought was excellent. Basically. I think what you're saying uh, really speaks to a huge part of the show, which is this word showrunner Russell T. Davis keeps coming back to, which is authenticity. Because it's like you're saying, the music isn't just this kind of meme version or what we in the 2020s would think of as the 1980s. It's the actual, you know, extant 1981 songs uh, that would have occupied the era. That's a really excellent point. And I think that ties so much in with how he's trying to, like when he talks about casting however people take this because of course it became controversial when he talks about casting just gay actors in the gay roles how he says that is because he wants to make this show so authentic and also how he's he has a line where he says almost every line spoken in this drama you can find the friend that said it to me and it's things like how the la la thing is based on what he and his mates did back when he was like around 18. La. And I wanted to do that because partly because I did that as a little camp kid in Swansea. Me and my gang of mates when we were teenagers all belonged to the same youth theatre. That was one of our jokes. It, that so much of the dialogue is actually from in-jokes or things people he's known as actually said. It's just this huge, huge concentration of authenticity into the show, which I think it's really making it feel special so far. From the music, the dialogue, the casting, it's, it's really something. What do you guys think of that? focus you can tell he was there at the time definitely yeah yeah i mean jill is outright based on a real person you know as yeah. he's described in interviews you know that's that was a real life friend also just like on the music point as well i think just the the use of music i think is it, the fact that there's so much good music in the show i think is inherent to the characters because these are people who are partying all the time and who are you know just constantly surrounded by really good music like these guys are constantly yeah. having fun i think it's just such a it's it's such a good fit for the DNA of the show. I think you, it, it wouldn't be right if there wasn't a huge, wide, awesome selection of music in the show, would there? Hmm. 
I think it's interesting to get something from RTD that is just so auto, not autobiographical, but just so like. Whereas something like Cucumber is maybe perhaps drawn from, you know, the experiences of like older men, it's interesting to get, like, such a laser insight into RTD's past and, like, a part of RTD's past that maybe he hasn't quite put on screen before because he's such an interesting person. It's like a Stephen Moffat show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that point about his real-life friend Jill, uh, who, of course, Lydia West is playing in the show, like Gig said, that's such an interesting aspect in that Russell T Davies just effuses about this person uh, so much. He says he said that he wishes uh, she could have been his girlfriend if you know life had turned out very differently. That is my friend Jill. We would belong to a we belong to the West Glamorgan Youth Theatre together. When I was fourteen, she was sixteen, and if only we could have been boyfriend and girlfriend, but fate would not allow that. To be. <laughs> and she would have been my girlfriend. She's absolutely beautiful, and Jill lived that life. I was kind of a I was a bit of a swatty student. I went away and read books. Jill went to London. She lived that life like these characters on screen. She lived in a flat. She called the Pink Palace, and that like. He, he he was reading books in his home like Colin was while Jill was off partying in London like more of the characters in the show are uh, and how um, inspirational she was to him. And I think that it's another, apart from authenticity, another huge aspect of the show which must come to the fore in late episodes is that it's a kind of testament. You guys have seen Russell T Davies describing what I'm talking about. The show is like a, a testament to all these various gay men uh, and people that Russell have known afflicted by HIV. I think that's a really fascinating aspect of the show, that it's like a, a, a tribute to specific people. You, you, you did use autobiographical elements in the plot as well? Everywhere. It's like when I was 18, this, this series fits my life literally. I was 18 in, in 1981. I went to university. That's, that's, a lot of my friends went to live in London. All my gay friends all went and lived and they moved into a big flat in Hampstead, I think it was, and they called it the Pink Palace. Um, so this is quite literally a lot, of, a lot of the dialogue has got their jokes and their rhythms and stuff like that to it. So um, there'll be a few, there'll be a few friends I haven't seen for years who'll be watching it going, this is slightly familiar. I lived in the Pink Palace once. Um, so, and some of them, of course, are no longer with us. Some of them passed away because HIV came along and claimed a lot of their lives. So um, it's nice to pay testament, nice to remember them like this. I'm very lucky in my job that I can do this. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, it's interesting that rather than just being a lament, mourning, something tragic that happened, it's really just as much about celebrating the good things. And I think that's that's going to be yeah, crucial. Yeah. I think it wouldn't really be an RTD show if it didn't celebrate the, the joys of life, even as those are alongside the kind of jaw-dropping existential tragedy and stuff. I mean, well, I think it's just an inherent bit of RTD's career, isn't it? Like, he's always combined the... He's always... It's part of this kind of view of, like, a... Cl clinging on to bits of happiness amid a kind of uncaring universe that's yeah, a big thing yeah. in his Doctor Who and it's I think it's a big thing here I mean that that whole bit with um, Neil Patrick Harris's character Mr Coltrane sort of in the hospital bed and kind of and just that utterly existentially horrific situation where he's wondering if it was just some tiny strip of mould something really random like that yeah. that left him dying alone separated from his lover of 30 years you know just completely like 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 a metaphor for like the entire chaotic nature of human existence but in the worst way possible imposed on this one guy completely lost and alone and that's just so awful but it's also offset with all the happiness and joy elsewhere in the story so it's kind of all of those interests and just that that blending of the sorrow and the joy i think the other 
main interesting aspect of the show as a testament, as a tribute to specific people, apart from that it's not like a, a just a tragic, you know, sobering tale of, you know, how terrible HIV was, but instead it's a celebration of the lives they lived before they died, like Gig was articulating. I think the other really interesting aspect of it, which the ending of this episode, uh, you know, is all about when the three main characters outline their ambitions for life and what are their ambitions? Richie's is... Well, first he wants to be huge on West End and then be a huge actor, but then he brings it back down a bit and he he would just be happy to be a working actor. Uh, Roscoe's a bit more ambitious. He wants to get super rich to throw it in the face of people who doubted him. And Colin, of course, just wants to... He's pretty happy where he is, but he wants to make his own life kind of a tribute uh, to Mr. Coltrane, was how I perceived that. But all those things, all those ambitions are pretty normal. That's, you know, <laughs> a lot of people, you know will dream of being an actor, but are okay just, you know, jobbing around theatre or whatever. Uh, a lot of people just want to stay in their jobs they're fairly comfortable in, like Colin. A lot of people want to get rich just to be vindictive. These aren't, like, huge, I want to cure cancer, I want to be the president, I want to change the world, I want to end world hunger. These aren't huge things like that. And what I love about that, and this is um, coming to a thing Russell T Davies has specifically said about the show, is that he thinks there's a huge temptation with AIDS to fall into the argument of saying all those lives lost, they might have been people who discovered the cure for cancer. They could have been doctors and professors. They could have enhanced society. But what Russell wanted to do was talk about the unremarkable victims because they're <laughs> they're just as important. Of course they are. He wanted to talk about people who didn't have a huge effect on the world, people whose destinies were, you know, quote unquote small, who just wanted to eat pizza and laugh around and have, you know, a happy regular little life. I really, really, really love that aspect. And I think that does tie into the authenticity as well. Just these these aren't huge people who made an impact on the world. These are regular people and their lives are all the more meaningful for that. I, I really love that aspect. You, do you guys get what I'm vibing with here with the characters? I love that those monologues were directly to camera. I feel like there's there was some of that in Cucumber as well. Monologues to camera I might be misremembering, yeah, yeah. but it feels like a not to bring up um, the uh, the B word, but it felt almost faintly uh, Brechtian in terms of um, <laughs> confronting the audience a little bit with the fact that rather than just being a, an immersive drama, it's also trying to kind of reach out to us a little bit and kind of make us kind of uh, cognizant that. This is kind of a, a look in on history. I'm just talking absolute bullshit here, but I think um, it really, it really humanised them. And I think, yeah, yeah. obviously, as soon as as soon as they start putting the focus on where do you see yourself in the future, uh, we kind of have that that again the foreknowledge of oh no, that's that has a faintly ominous tinge to it. And of course, they show at the end three empty hospital beds, you know, f which corresponds to the three monologues. So it's kind of a bit. Uh, you know, it, it's it's not quite as much as um, it's not quite as spoily as that thing in Cucumber that you know if you've watched it. But like it's <laughs> yeah, it's got um, it's very much got not didactic, but like um, kind of bringing the viewer, making the viewer aware of structure and the fact that it's a constructed work of fiction that's course, trying to yeah. open your eyes to the humanity of these people and the it's way not in testimonial which maybe, almost. Yes, yes, testimonial. Yeah. That's a perfect word for it. The way in which. Yeah, and the way in which reality did not necessarily align with what they hoped for, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I think it kind of puts the viewer in the position of, like, I we haven't seen beyond, you know, this episode. We, we, we're talking as, you know, new viewers of the first episode here. But assuming the characters come into more knowledge of HIV, which, you know, they must, they must, as the show progresses into the 80s, 
they must, I assume, start feeling like they have to squeeze life into what life they have left. You know, if when, when this when this mortality comes shaking down on you, it it must feel such a push to you know do it's to do things quicker or to pack more life into what you have left. I feel like this big dramatic irony that Gig is describing, you know, the hospital beds and the foreknowledge that, you know, I mean, maybe some of the three will survive, but it's the 80s, the show is about HIV, I'm pretty scared for all their chances. I feel like as we have that knowledge from, you know, how this episode ends and as the characters presumably learn in the next few episodes, it's like this desperation to pack more and more into the time we have left. I feel like we'll latch on to the characters more on what they're doing in the next few episodes because we're all too aware that our time with them might, they might not even make it to the third episode or the fourth episode who knows how long they're going to last i feel like i assume this will be reflected in how the characters start living their lives maybe frenetically maybe chaotically partying you know as hard as they can because who knows how much life they have left i feel like there's a linkage in that dramatic irony gig was describing to what the characters will probably start acting like oh just um <laughs> right on the subject change here, but um, it struck me that moment earlier on when um, Colin is kind of taken away by uh, the old guy to sort of be sort of have to clean his arms and is very obviously you know an uncomfortable kind of um, un unconsensual touching situation, yeah. and just the, the the strangeness of that and how he has that refrain of like clean clean those arms clean clean, uh, th- th- I think that the the um the lack of explainingness about that and just the fact that that's allowed to exist as a strange awkward anecdote in itself it it reminded me of that bit in years and years with the um the sex robot and how like you, you can an rtd kind of leavens sort of the the show with um with occasional moments of just completely unique unforgettable uh kind of weirdness and just like the the strangeness of the lives even though you know it doesn't necessarily add to like the any sort of semblance of like plot or uh, I don't know or you know deep thematic concerns or whatever, but I think it, it's um, I think it's it's a marker of his style. He's attuned to like the realistic, mundane, humane uh, oddities of life. I think I, I I really appreciated that. Yeah, I think there's a few moments like that. Um, one that stuck out to me was like it's just a little tiny thing, but it's when. Um, Gregory slash Gloria is is driving the car and he's driving kind of unsafely and um, the the passengers start to get really anxious about it and he's like well get out the car then if you don't like it that's like such a that feels so linked to the whole idea of peer pressure and behaving recklessly and just the whole like you know fuck you I'm gonna do what I want um, but yeah it's like it's like a pretty much the default peer pressure scenario when you know when you're taught about that concept but um it's yeah so intelligently linked with the overarching ideas of the show. Um, yeah, so many good, just like tiny beats and moments for sure. Speaking of overarching ideas, the opening monologue where Richie is talking about how uh, back when the law didn't conceive wives to have uh, agency and therefore responsibility, so a husband could be tried for a wife's crime, that was what it was about, right? Yeah, the arrested development thing. <laughs> the worst fucking attorneys. Do you, do you see do you see a greater uh is is this like a random characterizing moment to start the show or do you see any greater meaning into that? Because it started the show, so I was just curious uh if there was anything to it beyond just setting up that he's studying law. Well, it beats um it beats don't get me started on Isis as far as an opening <laughs> monologue goes. Um <laughs> I saw it as like Richie has this idea of his head in his head of like when you're an invisible member of society, 
you can effectively act with impunity and not face any consequences. Um, And in terms of like the women's case, then that was like actually something that could be genuinely taken advantage of. (laughs) Like, you know, as the parents joke, it's like, yeah, that'd be a great law (laughs) to bring back. Um, But obviously in Richie's case, I think that mentality is going to have some quite unfortunate consequences. But it was good. It was subtle. It's. It doesn't feel like this is a metaphor. Okay. It. It, it wasn't signposted yeah. or anything. Um, yeah. Yeah. I will say on that note, I do wonder because um, obviously they cast Keely Halls as Richie's mum, and obviously she's the sort of actor who gets billing in the credits as with Keely Halls and Neil Patrick Harris, rather than you know just listed along everyone else like Epso. So I obviously she's going to be um she's being set up for some big stuff later on in the series don't know what exactly but i wonder if that thing about like the the husband and wife is going to come back again because <laughs> she's the one who asked him to bring back the uh, the law so maybe she'll um she'll murder someone and then Epzo will take the blame that'd be fantastic that's a funny kind of uh it's not a spoiler but it's a funny kind of dramatic irony just facts of casting like that if you cast neil patrick harris in something he's going to be used in a big way it ended up just being one episode uh here you cast Keely Hawes in something and you assume there must be like a payoff. It's a, it's a fascinating aspect of the show like that. And also they have Ollie Alexander, who's the front man of this synth pop group and they have him like about to sing. And I, I'm thinking <laughs> like, he's going to have a genuine musical moment, but of course it's just la. Um, that oh, was a yeah. funny bit of misdirection. And of course his band uh, is called years and years, the name of yes. Russell's last show. So connections abound. Glitch in the matrix. Yeah. A complete coincidence. Just a <laughs> bizarre one. <laughs> Also on the misdirection point, there was that bit where we think he's going to come out to his parents, but he just admits that he's changing to not doing law anymore. Yeah. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like even for um, experiences that aren't coming out as gay, that's such a relatable thing of psyching yourself up to make a revelation you need to make and then chickening out and doing a much more minor, less important one. Very relatable scenario. And yeah, obviously with the dad's reaction to that, that can only delay the actual coming out, you know, probably by several years. Um, Yeah, that father was just so contemptible. Um, Epso really did a good job, I think, of channeling that. That thing he said to to Jill afterwards, like, oh, you opened it up for you, didn't you? Your your sweetness. And she she sort of sheepishly put her hands over her groin. I was like, that that was so uncomfortable. Like, Jesus. Just really skin crawling. Mm. Something I'm interested by is the parrot disease. Psittacosis. That's from the, the Tom Baker anecdote. The atmosphere was, was pretty bad. And Tom eventually saying, what? What is he saying? Grabbing the boom mic and saying, could somebody tell me what's going on up there? I'm getting psittacosis listening to that parrot. That's why I know it. It's, yeah. Oh. Anyway, go on. <laughs> HOV doesn't play a huge role in the episode because we're so early on and we, we're just hearing snippets of information or misinformation about it. But th- that's like, I feel like the big information scene in the episode is when... They're talking about how it's a cold that's come to Juan Pablo, uh, Mr. Coltrane's, I guess not husband, boyfriend. Silly little cough. He's in hospital. Fuss over nothing. They thought it was pneumonia. Then they thought it was birds. And then I love Colin's note of, you don't even have a bird. It's like that fascinating kind of sense of dread in that nothing is making sense. All the explanations being offered mm. are, they, there's no logic to them. It's just, it, it doesn't make sense if you think about it for more than a second. It can't be psittacosis. There's no, there's no parrot in the equation. And at the time, it must have felt like a science fiction idea, you know, which is, again, yeah. in Russell T. Davies's wheelhouse, it's something completely inexplicable, something, you know, unknowable, horrific. Where is the parrot? It's, it's, I just, I, I loved that kind of 
that that knowing you know sense at your head when just that there's no parrot when there's it something just can't make sense and that horrible feeling of it's something bigger than we understand then it's something oncoming that's you know going to be a bigger deal than it seems right now i thought that was a great little touch of the horror of of hiv to come was that conversation i really appreciated that I thought when Mr. Coltrane observed that he thought it was just bad luck that he and Juan Pablo got sick at the same time, I thought that there was something that's the, the, the sheer the sheer tragedy of that. I think it's almost like they're having their personal miracle day, like something utterly inexplicable. Yeah. It, you know, that is, is, that is how it seems. And just the sheer, like the, the fact that it's such a difficult thing, it's not obvious to identify because obviously it's a, an immune disease and it, it leads to other problems like, you know, a, a cancer or a pneumonia and stuff. It, it, the fact that they have absolutely no way of putting the pieces together like they truly are like lost in like an utterly you know incomprehensible like almost cosmic like horror just targeting them and it really yeah. and it really is just and it brings back to that idea of existential horror like like this yeah. this idea that it, you know it's not just it's not just like an STD thing. It's like, it's like, you know, it must've seemed almost like they were being targeted by God or something or just, it's that sense of just um, being completely at the mercy of the fates and just being completely existentially abject towards, you know, inscrutable forces. Like a curse. It's like, yeah, it's like a validation of all the worst things people would, you know, say about gay men, you know, that you're immoral, you're against God, like what Roscoe's family would say to him that, you know, you're, it's unnatural, um, you know, God is against this. For that to suddenly be, like, vindicated physically and through, a like, a plague of all things, it is, it's absolutely, like, this cosmic horror, this existential horror, this... It's... it's Absolutely terrifying um, to conceive what that must have been like uh, in the 1980s when it, was, when it was all so new and it could feel like you were actually being cursed or, like, God was actually coming to smite. It's, yeah absolutely horrifying i the show's doing a good job so far and i'm sure it's going to get so much more affecting as it goes on of how it must have felt back to sort of rtd's subtle writing choices i really loved the the quirk of dialogue where um mr Col- henry coltrane when henry was in the hospital bed um and he's talking about how they're not giving him lunch and he says they do not and like he doesn't contract it he says they don't so it's like even at the last moments of his life, he still retains his essential quality of being kind of like a, a dandy, like a very yeah, sort of yeah. fancy type character, just retaining his essence, basically. Um, I thought that was really good. And I, I just, I liked Neil Patrick Harris's performance as well. It felt like he was doing kind of like a like a James Mason or even a John Cleese type impression, just that English gentleman. Yeah. yeah. But obviously with a sort of naughty twist. Um, yeah, I thought he was really good. I'm often not a fan of his performances, uh, which I tend to find kind of overwrought in a lot of things. But while this performance was that in its own way, it felt so keyed into what the show needed out of that role. And as though he was playing kind of different than he does normally, he was playing British, you know, he was playing this very specific uh, role in the drama. It, it totally worked for me. Mm. In fact, I'm more interested in whatever he's doing in The Matrix 4 now because I've enjoyed a Neil Patrick Harris performance. So the, the door is open. What I found interesting about his dialogue was in that scene where he reveals to Colin that Juan Pablo has come down sick. He he's downplaying it so much because he starts, oh, he he's got a cough, you know. Oh, he's making a three-act play of it, and they thought it was pneumonia. Just that that sheer like you know arson, murder, and jaywalking, but in reverse, like that sort of yeah. the, the the fact that he, he's so um, it's this idea of like almost like the stiff upper lip, but like the gay equivalent. Like he's sort of he's so um, he's so 
accustomed to like being completely fine with things like you know moving on from his family and just kind of pushing down like those emotions and kind of you know acting cool with stuff and just being completely cool and controlled that it leads to just sort of like downplaying this incredibly serious stuff and this sort of emotional repression which I think is quite really fascinating because you know it's not because often you know maybe when you think about like the sort of like fabulous gay people you think of people who are very like open or very you know uh, sherry or dramatic or whatever but like this is sort of the flip side you know this is someone who almost can't like who, who almost can't convey like the seriousness of what's going on or who is so is so just like can't like or you just want to let out someone who is so almost wrapped up i thought it was a really fascinating character yeah it's it's like a version of masculinity basically that's how mm. i see it yeah. and it's why yeah. i think yeah. this series should have been called boys um i think it's a sin is a fine title but i think boys sort of sums it, sums it up better and it's more less less specific it's more vague um and i like that as a title more and it, did you see the credits they still had the copyright as the boys it still said <laughs> the boys um which i had to do a double take Okay, sure. I have just made a show called Boys about the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. We finished filming on the first day of February, I think. So the shoot was finished, everything was done. Um, so we're just in the edit now, and it is amazing. Yeah, interesting. You know, I think the, the term boys, I think also it kind of makes them, it, it child, not infantilizes them, but it makes them see you as like perhaps the, the kids that they are ultimately. Like even, you know, even the adult characters are, you know, maybe to some extent still, they were kids at some point. I think it makes them more, um, it makes you have more, I don't know, pity for them. Like it, it sort of makes them seem more vulnerable as a title. I know we're talking about a title they didn't even use in the end, but it's still interesting. Yeah. One thought, I thought on the whole, it was really, um, it was a really gorgeous show. Like I thought it was definitely better looking than years and years. And the director, Peter Hoare, um, he did one Doctor Who episode, uh, Good Man Goes to War, which is not what I expected. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was just an interesting thing. And just one more thing. Also, obviously I love the cast and I love Lydia West. I want her to be in every yes. RCD and Moffat show yes. from now on. She's so good. Oh, she's just so radiant. She just, you can see why Russell T Davies in real life would, you know, be so inspired by this person that Lydia West is just playing. Like she's selling that to me. She's not the actual person, but just this this warmth and this loveliness. You see how Colin feels comfortable with her so quickly and how and how Richie became friends with her so quickly. She's really selling that kind of magnetism. It's great stuff. I thought it was an interesting decision to place Richie on the Isle of Wight. Just like I think it's a very dramatically evocative thing to have an actual body of water like separating him from his family um yeah and just with the idea of like plague and contagion i don't know i don't know where they're going with it um but it feels like a deliberate choice um but yeah i thought it was interesting and just like the image of them on the boat and everything well do you think the cgi boat looked kind of bad <laughs> but yeah, yeah that image of them going on the sort of um sea um ocean voyage when they have to go back from the his parents house to the mainland that's that's going to be i think potentially quite good in the future as well yeah i like that choice We've only seen this first episode at this time of recording right now. Any ideas, thoughts for what might happen in the next four episodes? I I think I'd rather not. It's only five episodes, you know, like a lot happens in each episode. My only prediction type thing is that I, I had a vague thought that maybe it, um, Richie might end up being some sort of, um, to use a modern term that's from this recent era, he might end up being a super spreader, just because they, they they showed him going around all the different guys and kind of yeah. you know, kind of winking at each of the guys he'd had before, and it's like I don't know, like it, 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 it could be that maybe he ends up playing the role and being a reason that other characters get infected or something, I don't know, something like that could happen, I don't know. I 
my my thing I I can see why the three leads might die. I mean, apart from the fact you know they're gay men in, in the 1980s here and the foreshadowing of the three hospital beds, but I don't feel like Russell is capable of ending the show like on this super grim note. But I also don't think he's going to zoom it past the 80s. The show's just going to cover you know the the one decade. So I have no idea how he's going to square. What if all my leads die? But I don't want you know, the ending to be super depressing and dark and well, just awful and make everyone feel like shit. So I, this is a lack of prediction. I don't know how that's going to happen, but I'm interested to see. See, I think the presence of Jill might be what enables them to do something like kill all the other characters. Because I think, assuming she yeah. will be fine, like, there's, there's a degree, if, as long as there is a character who is around to maybe mourn the dead characters and the character who we love is kind of with us all the way through. I feel like it, it might be the show where RTD kills off all the main characters. I don't know, but it, it, it doesn't feel impossible to me. Yeah, that's a, it's a sobering thought. I don't... <laughs> I, I've... Even in just, you know, this... It wasn't even an hour, but I've grown so attached to those those three main guys so quickly. It's going to be absolutely brutal. Uh, even if, you know, one of them or two of them don't die, the fact that, you know, the other... So many others that they're close to will... Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Honestly, I, I am. A, I am a bit scared to watch the rest of yeah. it. Honestly, because it's like you know, RTD is perfectly capable of writing really haunting stuff when the need arises. Yeah, I'm. I'm nervous. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We're getting this kind of triptych of very specific gay dramas uh, by Russell T Davies, you know, rounding out here with queer as folk not dealing with HIV at all. Cucumber. Well. Very. Well, am I? Oh, is is that's interesting. I've seen Russell say in interviews it doesn't. Is it's it it's not it's not totally unmentioned, you know. Um, it, but no, it doesn't play a large role in the series. Cucumber, it's mentioned, and it's there's some implicit stuff, but it's not like a a big deal in it, as I remember. Yeah, I think because Cucumber set in the present, kind of perhaps like it, it doesn't have that sort of uh, well in the present where it's maybe not as huge of a problem as it was back then. If you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, Cucumber has other issues to deal with, as you yeah. as you see over the course of the series. Yeah. But I guess Cucumber's a show about middle age. Banana isn't so much, but Cucumber is, whereas this is, you know, youth. I think the fact that it's going back all the way to the past for the third act, I think it is because this is kind of the un- the thing that has underlied those previous two shows. Yeah. Like, this is sort of the history behind them. So we're finally getting... We're completing the picture by getting to the underlying basis for all of it. Yeah. And um, on the subject of the other dramas that RTD has done, I just, I think it would be relevant to mention that on the on the subject of like the testimony style epilogue to this episode of The Addresses to Camera, um, that's a huge part of the first episode of Queer as Folk, where um, you have characters addressing the camera and it's not even diegetically explained, like it really is just like a testimony, um, it doesn't have any place in the, in the story. Um, so I think that's a really interesting comparison and, and, and in that show, not to spoil, but it was sort of outlining how these central characters of Queer as Folk are kind of exceptional. They're kind of like these mythic people in their own world. Whereas this, as we've, as we've outlined, is sort of the exact opposite. It's like just highlighting the minute sort of pleasures of life and the, the, the Donegal Tweed berries, which is my favourite part of that dialogue. It's <laughs> just like that. so, yeah, yeah beautiful. Um, but I think that's an interesting point of comparison, uh, sort of a linkage element between these shows. So it really is full circle. Yeah, quite. You know, you know it's not that I like him more than the other two, because uh, I love Roscoe and Richie too, but Colin dying, if that happens, that it's going to be very hard to <laughs> persist, you know, right away with the show. That would be so brutal. He's so innocent and naive, and he's just getting started. But that's good drama. It, 
RTD is a great dramatist. Now we come to the Sin Spoiler Zone. This segment was recorded some days after that initial main discussion, and so now both Tom and I have seen all five episodes of the show. So, having seen the whole show, what more can we say about episode one now? I think quite a lot about it, really. I think, uh, having seen the whole show, what, what sticks out to me about the episodes is that I think each episode kind of works as sort of its own premise. Very much. And while they also serve this, yeah, they also serve this, like, vast tapestry, I also think that the way RTD has sort of focused on one thing in each episode um, worked really well. And this episode, um, in retrospect, it, it functions really well as sort of what we always knew it was, but it's basically like a, a piece about um, the lost potential of, of these lives and, like, you know, the last scene of this episode pretty much implies, you know, what potential it is that has been lost and... Um, in that sense, I think it still works really well as a standalone episode, while also containing some very interesting foreshadowing for the future events of the series. I was interested how that hospital bed, the three hospital bed foreshadowing gig talked about, didn't end up accurate in that Roscoe survived. So I guess it was more dramatic tension and making a sense of doom rather than like super direct and literal foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Gig correctly identified that Keely Hawes wasn't cast for some small reason as well, since she's, you know, the centerpiece of the finale. Yeah, which I think shows his sort of understanding of British TV, because like, because I don't really watch <laughs> that much British TV. Keely Hawes isn't that significant to me, but um, I basically know her as Miss Carabraxos from Doctor Who. But yeah, yeah, she did, and the introductory monologue as well reads in a somewhat different light. I think. Yes. Now that we know that Valerie Tozer is in a, in a way the final boss of It's a Sin. <laughs> In terms of just foreshadowing we can extract from this, I mean, there's a lot. There's Colin suiting up to visit Neil Patrick Harris is kind of mirrored when later it's, you know, him in that kind of sick, isolated ward. The exuberant William Tell Overture montage of Richie having sex with many men kind of sets up how he functions as a super spreader later on. Even the very first uh, dialogue in the first episode, like you were talking about Richie's monologue, when she ends that discussion of the law by talking about cleaning his wardrobe and saying, I can move everything out and give it a good scrub. And I think just the word choice of scrub for me called to now calls to mind all the times that like Lydia scrubs the mug that Gloria drank from and all these other people scrub the rooms and things that HIV infected characters uh, occupied because of the virus. Yeah. And also just the idea of her like imposition onto his private life. I think it's like always a, always a thing with um you know parents and kids it's like the boundary of privacy and um she's sort of not totally breaching that but she's like walking a line almost and because obviously richie does feel the need to get in there first and get rid of everything um and yeah clive's clive's little joke about um oh richie you should bring that law back here about you know um or no he, he feels threatened by by valerie in reference to this law about you know women not being responsible for their crimes it Initially, it read just like a sort of facile boomer, oh, I hate my wife type joke. But in light of episode five, where Clive is portrayed as like somewhat victimized, somewhat infantilized, um, it's in, in a sort of complicated way. It, yeah. it now reads as something of a genuine cry for help. <laughs> like, 
she sort of keeps him in a very strange way. Another Clive thing is that in this episode, when Ash asks what Richie's dad knows about him being gay, Richie says, they don't know, they'd kill me, they'd chuck me out. I'm not kidding. I have to sit there not saying a word. I think that links into the finale where Jill's Jill has that speech to Richie's mum about their loveless home and repression. And Richie's dad, Clive, actually gets very compassionate and loving when he finds out well, he finds that Richie is gay, but it's something like 13 years after that episode one scene, and it's very much about the fact his son is dying. I think it's interesting how much of that repression and perception of emotions is implicit and how much is is explicit, because Richie's dad blows up at him for things like his studies and his career. Not that this makes it any better, but I think a lot of it is this kind of Britishness, not that we'd know about that, <laughs> that cultural sort of repression people avoiding communicating their own love or feelings for each other. I remember in episode four, when his dad was clearly disappointed, Richie doesn't stay for dinner. He says, stay here and have dinner with your mother, for Christ's sake. It's like always offloading emotion and love onto the mother rather than Clive owning that it's him himself who wants to see Richie and wants to have time with him at dinner and so on. So yeah, I totally agree that his dad's characterization takes on a new life, uh, having seen the later episodes. Yeah, I think think the series... I guess we'll get to this later in episode five, but I think the series almost risks sort of redeeming him unfairly when it's, it's not like, it's not a redemption really. It's just that when it counts, when his son is dying, he, he has a basic sense of human decency, which his mother sort of sidesteps in a way. Russell T Davies and writing mother characters. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just thank God for Jill and Colin's mother. Cause otherwise this would be, a, t- a subject for so much discussion about RTD's sort of alleged yeah. misogyny. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get to all that stuff later on in the finale. On on a, Focusing on a different character, with Colin, I have two thoughts. One is that his mum on the phone says, you know, well, you've always had such a good memory. I could have told them that. I remember you revising. You'd learn whole chapters off by heart. Oh, yeah. I found that so sad because, of course, his memory... That is heartbreaking. You know, completely goes in episode three. Also with Colin, the football shirt, Ross, that guy in the house with him. Yeah. I think you detected something was up in that house where I didn't. So you could you feel that there was more than met the eye in episode one? Yeah. I, I got a really bad vibe from the house just because of the landlady's sort of patronizingness and the... Basically, when I heard sport playing on the TV in the background, that's when I knew something was wrong, because I know sport always equals toxic masculinity in these kinds of things. Um, and re-watching the episode, I sort of... You see some very conspicuous glances between Colin and Ross, the, the landlady's son. I, On my first watch, I thought that was just signifying basically Colin's sexual frustration and, yeah, just sort of the watchful eye of that that version of masculinity, but... Obviously, in retrospect, it's signifying something completely different. It was a really interesting decision to to not show Colin's encounters with Ross in the first episode because we don't see it until the flashback in episode three. And um, I think that was a really interesting choice because it kind of... It almost puts us in Colin's shoes because, like, Colin's encounters with Ross are so marked by, like, shame and, and self-hatred and, um, you know, denial that... Actually, Colin's denial becomes so pronounced that it becomes 
an actual gap in the narrative. It's like it's like he's censoring his own experience of that. That it, it and we don't get to see it even, um, and we only find out like when it's too late, obviously. Um, and that just makes it so much more heartbreaking that it's like a gap in the narrative. Yeah, just the way that was revealed. Yeah, absolutely. I think there might be some dramatic irony in in the ending monologue where Roscoe's talking about um, how he wants to get rich and shove it in the face of you know everyone who's doubted him. And it was kind of funny how Roscoe potentially had that opportunity in the palm of his hand with his friendship with Stephen Fry. Yeah. And he throws that away in the most glorious sort of cathartic fashion. But yeah, he ends up, you know, running a club and hopefully being amazing for the rest of his life and living happy, happily ever after. Because there has to be some ray of sunshine, um, you know, in our main characters. Uh, yes. But yeah, it was it was so sad how, how quickly Colin's dream came crashing down. I mean, literally in the next episode, he loses his job. Yeah, just so, so rough. Well, I'll, we'll end on one note of joy in that hospital bed foreshadowing being misdirected because Roscoe did survive, which thank God there was some joy and life in the series at the end. Yes. 